0: be a Better Ally podcast. My name is Trisha Friedman. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. On today, I am really excited to be talking with Dr. Jennifer Jill Fellows, who is a faculty member in the philosophy department at Douglas College. She is also the co-editor of one of the books that I devoured this year and absolutely adored, That book is called Gender, Sex, and Tech, An Intersectional Feminist Guide. We're going to talk about the book. We're going to talk about the process behind it. And we are going to talk about uh, Dr. Fellow's extension podcast that is based in part on taking that book further. Before we dig into that conversation, today is the day of AI. And I thought it would be a good reminder to let you know that The work that I am doing with Shifting Schools is of course exploring generative AI and equity. Starting this August, we are actually having a three month cohort that is intentionally kept small so that we can be supporting educators with their context specific questions about generative AI tools like ChatGPT. You can learn more about that three month cohort each month of the cohort, you will get a 30-minute webinar. You are going to get ready-to-roll resources for the classroom, a curated list of new tools, access to an optional Slack space, and more. Now, that cohort is kept small, as I said, so that we can be really hyper-specific and focused in on your questions, your needs, your wants. Uh, so we are doing sign-ups right now. You can get the link to the form in the show notes of this episode or by heading to ShiftingSchools.com. When you fill out that form, you save your seat for the early bird price. Now, the early bird pricing for our Shifting Schools three-month generative AI cohort, anytime between now and June 10th, you can sign up for $175. That pays for all three months and if spots still remain after June 10th that price goes up to 325. Now as listeners of this show you get a special discount offer when you use promo code BABA24 that's all caps B A B A 25 you can take $25 off the price. So I would love to see you in that cohort talking more about the intersection of equity and AI and um, really what generative AI is going to mean for our work in education. And now back to today's outstanding guest. I loved our conversation chatting with Jennifer, Jill Fellows, co-editor of the collection of essays, which examines technology through an intersectional feminist lens. The book explores everything from menstrual tech to dating apps from baby bottles to the gendering of virtual assistants. Enjoy my conversation with co-editor of Gender, Sex, and Tech, an Intersectional Feminist Guide with Jennifer Jill Fellows. Okay, so Jill, I'm really excited to speak with you directly about your work. This was one of those books that... While I think a reader could sort of dip in and out at any point, like any of the essays I think can work as a starting point, I actually want to start our conversation at the very, very beginning of your book, which, listeners, is entitled Gender, Sex and Tech, An Intersectional Feminist Guide. You dedicate this collection of essays to your child and you write, quote, may she know a digital landscape that is more equitable than the one i see now end quote can you expand on that and help listeners understand more about what an equitable digital landscape might be
1: yeah i want to first of all thank you um for noticing the dedication <laughs> um and just um thank you for inviting me today i think I think first and foremost, to talk about a more equitable digital landscape, we have to talk about the ways in which it's not equitable right now um, and recognize that it's really possible and is actually happening that technology is mirroring and reinforcing the inequalities that already exist offline, so to speak. Um, There are lots of examples of the ways in which it's not equitable. We can talk about AI, for example, and you know, the big one that we're going to talk about later today is ChatGPT. And if I ask ChatGPT for a list of famous philosophers, which is the discipline I work in, they're all white men. That's the list that ChatGPT gives you is a list of white cis men. Um, <laughs> and, or Google Translate right now has an issue where if you put um, a sentence into a language that doesn't use gendered pronouns. So, for example, if you asked... Google translate to translate, Um, they are a philosopher from uh, Malay that doesn't use gendered pronouns into English, it will pick he is a philosopher. Um, They are a childcare worker becomes she is a childcare worker. So there are a lot of ways in which our um, digital tools are reinforcing existing biases in gender, um, racism, ableism, all this kind of stuff. And that's before we even get into issues like uh, harassment, doxing, cyberbullying, revenge pornography, which all uh, disproportionately affect marginalized groups. And lastly, digital tools are built not to include certain people. So there's been a lot of discussion of facial recognition software right now, um, which tends to recognize the faces of white cis men really, really well and doesn't recognize the faces of darker skinned people, for example, Um, and natural language programs, which are trained really, really well on what's known as standard American English, but don't recognize people speaking in other accents, even if their accented English is, um, even if English is their first language, but it's accented in a way that's not quote unquote, I'm using my air quotes, (laughs) standard American. So that's just like a survey of a bunch of ways in which our digital landscape is not built to be equitable. So I think the first thing would be to recognize that these inequalities exist, because I think that there's this kind of myth that like technology is going to be neutral or unbiased because we're you know removing the human element. Like if we recognize that humans are biased, well, let's just take them out and we'll let the technological tools do the work. Um, but that's not what's happening because humans are building these tools. So we have to recognize the inequalities are there. And then we could probably work towards building inclusive and empowering digital tools that don't learn from and reinforce these inequalities if we recognize they're there. And that might mean doing things like rethinking the data or corpora we use to train these tools since we're largely training them on existing content often without really thinking about what content is fed in. But it also might mean thinking about things like what kind of communities are we building with these tools? Who's who's welcome into these digital spaces and who is facing disproportionate harassment, doxing, um, fear for their lives, things like that. And I guess the last thing that I would talk about here, which is a huge issue as well, is the digital divide, right? Who actually has access to digital space in general? So... Unesco um, put out a report in 2018, which I may talk about later in more detail, but one of the things they noted in the report is that if families can only afford um, one computer or tablet, it tends to live more in a son's room than in a daughter's room, Um, and also issues like People in rural parts of um, the world, even in Canada and rural parts of Canada, where I live, don't tend to have as much access to like broadband internet for streaming videos and things as people in more urban centers. So we do have this issue of access as well. And even once you get online, I think it's over 50% of the internet is in English right now. So that's another issue for the digital divide in terms of you get on there. Can you interact with people on there in your first language, for example, or is another aspect that you need to learn English in order to participate fully online? So that's kind of all the things I think about in terms of trying to make the Internet more equitable. And that's a, a really
0: brilliant summary, because I think when we're talking about technology and equity, as you pointed out, so eloquently, there are so many different entry points into the conversation. All of them, again, I think need to be centered in a way that is not about the, you know, I see a lot of focus on productivity or, you know, just yay innovation and not necessarily enough questions And I feel like we need to learn from not so far off history in, you know, what happened with social media. um, And when we weren't necessarily thinking very carefully about the way that that was deployed. And, you know, you you bring up generative AI tools like chat GPT, and that, of course, they're not neutral, because they're based on things that we have said and shared. And I learned recently that Wikipedia, which again has been a source for ChatGPT, 80% of Wikipedia has been written by men. Yeah. Um, You know, and and, um, it's interesting because I've I've kind of toyed around with ChatGPT and asking it which different social media platforms it is fed on. And you can also ask it like ChatGPT, you know, was 4chan, was 8chan a part of your, you know, data food set? And it won't give me a definitive answer. Yeah. which I find really problematic because, you know, those are spaces that are notoriously known for all of their hate speech. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of really, really important questions to be asked there. Yeah, I will say, though, and I, I know that you have a lot of interest in the way in which virtual assistants have been gendered um, and chat GPT does not seem to have been gendered. I'm kind of interested to see. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know if you ha- have thoughts on that. Like I find with any virtual assistant, I always say, please, um, <laughs> it's almost like a, a default. And sometimes in like training videos, you know, I'll be just in real time asking or prompting chat GPT and I always do please. And
1: sometimes people yeah. point that out and say like, why are you, why are you doing the why please? Why are you please? being
0: polite? Yes.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, we'll talk about virtual assistants more, I imagine um, with, Yeah. So with these generative AI tools and with ChatGPT specifically, it doesn't have a ton of personality yet. um, And it doesn't seem to have a gender at the moment. I mean, I'm using it to talk about it. Like it's a tool, not a person. Whereas when Mm -hmm. I talk about Siri or Alexa, I usually say she, right? (laughs) Um, I think there has been talk that I've seen about including ChatGPT-like to, tools, making Siri and Alexa more like a generative AI. So I think that we may see this, this gendering of generative AI begin. Um, there's also been talk about including these tools with therapy bots and therapy chat, which I have a lot of thoughts about. <laughs> I'm very concerned about that. Um, but at the moment, it I'd say it's it has as far as I've seen from playing around with it, it has kind of two predominant personality traits insofar as it has any. And this is specifically chat GPT. It speaks very authoritatively hmm. because it or it doesn't speak. It writes very authoritatively because it tends to write in the this kind of parading as neutral authoritative language that you see kind of all over the internet, right? So it 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 picks up that spot style and it writes in a very authoritative way, which is a bit concerning to me when I think about trust and expertise. It, it very much writes in a language of expertise, even though it will do things like invent um, sources and citations and make up claims. I think it said that Elon Musk was killed in a car crash at one point um, in in 2017 or something, which we know is not true. Um, So it will make up claims, but sounds very authoritative, which Siri doesn't. Siri often will say, I think, and I'm not sure. And chat GPT doesn't do that, which is very interesting to me for how we relate to it. And the other kind of personality trait that I've noticed specifically because I've been working in ethics is that chat GPT seems to be written as a moral relativist. Hmm. So it doesn't take moral stances. It says it can't because it's an AI, but it also often will offer you two or three different ways of looking at something and then just be like, it's up to your subjective opinion and and then just kind of leave it at that, which I find kind of concerning when you're talking about ethics because moral relativism obviously can lead us to a place of moral nihilism, which is not a great place to be um, when you're trying to build equitable tools so yeah those are those are the two personality traits that i've noticed so far i'll be curious if other people notice other things but i've been thinking about those at the moment that's
0: fascinating and i think it will be interesting to see again it's not been a huge amount of time and you know chat gpt has had iterations it's evolved so that personality piece i'll be watching out for that now to yeah. see um how that shifts thanks for for pointing that out um you know speaking of virtual assistants of course one of the contributions to the book is the essay, the chapter that you have that is all about how virtual assistants have been gendered. It's absolutely um, I, I just it, it's brilliant. And again, oh, thank you, know, you! I'm so happy that one of the podcast episodes. So listeners, there's also a great podcast companion to this work where you kind of expand on essays that are here. I love that you did kind of a swap and you go on your own show as a guest and are interviewed speaking about it. Um, you explain right at the beginning that you're looking at how virtual assistants have been gendered kind of from the position of you know you're a philosopher and i'm wondering how you can talk about i'm wondering if you can just sort of go into detail about how that identity how being a philosopher drives the research that you've done into um virtual assistants and listeners i'll be sure of course to also link to the podcast episode where you talk more about how you became a philosopher because i think that's a it's a great story too
1: Thanks. Yeah, that episode was really fun because I was like, well, I'm not going to interview myself. So I invited somebody on to be a host and I was a guest and that was super fun. Um, But yeah, let's so my interest in virtual assistants as a philosopher. I was thinking about this question and I really appreciate this question. I suppose that it in some ways goes back to when I was doing my master's degree in philosophy which sort of set the stage for this interest because my master's I I wrote a thesis you don't always have to write a thesis to do a master's but I did a thesis based master's so I had to write this little book that like 10 people have read that's probably generous two people have read (laughs) Um, so I did a master's and my master's was focused on personal identity Um, So I was looking at the ways in which our identities are built and shaped and sustained both by our own memories and by the stories other people tell us. So the ways in which, you know, if you don't remember something when you were three, like maybe your parents or an older sibling or a friend can kind of fill in those gaps. So I was also already very interested in identity um, and how identities are shaped and cultivated and the way in which that works together in communities um, and But that was way before virtual assistants existed. Like I did my MA in the mid 2000s and Siri didn't come out till 2011. So there was no virtual assistants at the time I did that. Um, but I did my PhD in philosophy, examining feminist philosophy of science. And so that kind of got me into like science and technology studies stuff. And it was also during my PhD that I became really interested in um, this philosopher, Hegel, GWF Hegel. Um, who wrote this huge tome called The Phenomenology of Spirit. That's what it's called in English. Um, And in that tome, he has this discussion of the master-slave dialectic. This didn't actually relate to my PhD dissertation at all. It was just something I was interested in. Um, And I remember, this is so stereotypical, going to like coffee shops and and bars with other PhD students and all sitting around with our giant Phenomenology of Spirit books (laughs) on the table with our beers and our coffee and trying to figure out what Hegel was saying, because it's super not clear. (laughs) That's what you do, right? Mm -hmm. When you're a grad student. Um, But the master-slave dialectic is this idea, because it matters when I get to virtual assistants. So I'm going to talk about it now. So it was this idea that um, when a self-conscious being comes in contact with another self-consciousness, there's what Hegel called this kind of struggle to the death that's a little metaphorical and a little hyperbolic but what happens is you come in contact with another individual and i'm just going to say person for the sake of this um although i know hegel can work at other levels for any philosophers who are listening so you come in contact with another person and you feel pulled out of yourself. You feel like you're seeing yourself from their point of view and you start worrying about like even superficial things like, is my hair okay? Am I gesturing too much? Am I being weird? Am I going to be accepted? Um, And so for Hegel, what happens is that you want to try and kind of assert control over the situation so that you can kind of regain control of yourself. And so he says, you get into this power struggle with the other person And eventually what happens is one person um, emerges dominant and the other person becomes subordinate. And the dominant person gets to kind of dictate what's going to happen. And the subordinate person works for the dominant. So it's called the master-slave dialectic, but another translation is lordship and bondage. And so you can really see this with the lord and the bondsman, for example. So if you think of the lord, they're the ones that have all the power. They tell the bondsman working the fields like, this is when you need to submit your tithe, and this is when you need to do things for me, and this is how many, I don't know, barrels of oats I need or whatever. And so the lord dictates the terms and the bondsman works for the lord. Quite quickly, a number of philosophers noted that this relationship exists in a lot of places. right? So okay, we don't have a lot of lords and bondsmen kicking around anymore. (laughs) um, But any place where you have somebody who's in power in a position of control that can dictate the terms of labor and somebody else working for them, we end up with this issue. And this creates, for Hegel, both a power asymmetry but also a knowledge asymmetry. So the Lord has all the power, but it's the bondsman that knows how to like cultivate the crops, how to till the fields, how to do the work, because the Lord isn't doing the work. Um, and the bondsman also has to know a whole lot about what the Lord wants and what the Lord desires, because the bondsman's livelihood depends on it. They can't piss off the Lord. So we can also see this where it matters for virtual assistants um, in relationships between bosses and assistants, that the assistant Often has access to the boss's email, to the boss's calendar, knows a whole bunch of things about the boss's schedule, may know how the boss likes their coffee made, all that kinds of stuff. And the, the boss may not know a whole lot about the assistant. So there's a, this power and knowledge asymmetry that happens. So that's kind of floating around in the back of my brain. Fast forward a few years, and I'm teaching a feminist philosophy class at Douglas College where I work. And we're looking at gender and gender identity. And some of my students are asking like, well, what does it mean to have a gender identity that may be different from the sex assigned at birth, for example? And it struck me, we we were reading a bunch of great um, articles by um, uh, trans philosophers. So there's a a philosopher, Talia Mae Beecher, who's fantastic talking about gender and identity and um, some other philosophers that we're reading but it also struck me that like oddly Siri is kind of a fantastic example because Siri doesn't have a sex that was assigned at birth but Siri performs a gender Um, and Siri is programmed to perform a gender for us to make it easier for us to relate to her and so I began to research Siri and her gender and wonder why she was the way that she was Why is she female? Because she was rolled out as female. They're all rolled out as female, Siri and Alexa and Cortana, which is kind of on the back burner right now. Um, And Google Assistant, even though Google Assistant doesn't have a female name, was rolled out with just a female voice at the time. And it's more than just the voice. There's also manners of speaking um, and the name. And in some cases, there were elaborate backstories that were designed for some of these assistants. And I really started wondering, like, why is this? Why, why are they all gendered? Why are they all performing a feminine gender, a, a female gender? And that's when I found the UNESCO report that I talked about earlier from 2018, which is called I'd Blush If I Could, and it's online. And I recommend everybody check it out. And holy hell, Hegel is mentioned in it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, UNESCO says that Hegel makes this point that the possession of a slave dehumanizes the master. So they're worried about us relating to virtual assistants as though they are our slaves or our servants and what that might do to us. Hegel makes this point after the master-slave dialectic. Um, And so UNESCO is really concerned that it's possible that possession of Siri dehumanizes us um, in ways that would make um, populations more likely to harass or um, otherwise be sexist towards women in uh, when they're not digital <laughs> to real women. Right. So if we treat Siri and Alexa in ways that are dismissive of them and that they're just kind of our servants, would we start doing the same thing to human women? And if especially they spend quite a bit of time talking about the effect this might have on children. Right. So you say, for example, you always say please and thank you. And there were some trials that were done that required children to be polite to digital assistance as a way to try and potentially mitigate this problem. And so I think UNESCO is right that this is a potential concern. Um, but I also thought maybe something else was going on here that Hegel also talks about. So Siri, I think, is designed as female because she is purposefully designed to signal submission. So we live in a patriarchal society right now. And so Siri is designed to make us feel empowered, like we are the master, and she is our subordinate female assistant. And both the role of being assistant and also the gender reinforce this idea of submission. And that's strategically a marketing, like a smart thing to do because we're all concerned that robot overlords are going to take over and and destroy humanity. So Siri signaling submission is is. A clever thing to do but it also means that when we think about what hegel said regarding knowledge and power if we're being told we have the power then it's siri and alexa that have the knowledge Mm. and they do like we give them so much information about ourselves but also do we have the power (laughs) not really right like apple and microsoft and amazon are extremely powerful companies and so i The main claim I make in this chapter is that these companies are faking subordination in order to gain all the knowledge that Hegel said could be found in the subordinate position. But they're making us feel empowered, but we're not necessarily being empowered by these tools so much as we are just feeding a lot of content and information to these companies that they can use to nudge our purchasing decisions and manipulate us in other ways.
0: I Yeah, that's again, you know, when we think about how highly personal the information is that we give to those companies, you know, and then I will often hear folks say, like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe that, you know, again, Amazon nudged me or something nudged me to knowing a product that I was going to have to buy, like, before I knew I had to buy it. But it's sort of, um, I I think the phrase is luxury surveillance, um, (laughs) you know, that, that, again, it's sort of, you know, we're, we're almost paying to be observed in this yes. way. Um, yes. But you know, I have to say, I, I love what you're doing here because I think sometimes in education, folks almost position the humanities or philosophy as like the opposite of STEM or technology. And this is much more of a, you know, kind of a, a disruption of that and saying like these, you know, this interdisciplinary approach is going to be necessary. Um, it yeah. is not that uh, you know these things. You know, philosophy, you go over there. Science, technology, you go sit over there. Never talk to one another. Um, you know, and I think right now we're hearing so many folks talk about kind of the defunding of the humanities, and you're reminding us that I don't know. I almost feel like now is a time that we're going to need to lean into that
1: perspective um, in a, in a very big way. It's really concerning to me that like Microsoft just laid off all their. Ethicists, for example, like we we need really robust ethical thinkers at the moment to think through what's happening and what the implications would be of what's happening. Um, and I'll also say that I I mean I've worked into interdisciplinary for a number of years. Science and technology studies is kind of a fundamentally interdisciplinary area. Of research that brings together scientists and engineers and philosophers and historians and rhetoric scholars and sociologists and I'm probably forgetting some people psychologists like it's a it's a huge interdisciplinary area um, that I think is is very very needed right now like we need to not think in silos at the moment um, and I think to some degree the division of disciplines at the post secondary level is a little bit artificial. Like when I went to grad school, the first thing I'll note is that people don't always know this, but philosophy actually ranks with STEM sciences for underrepresentation of women, (laughs) um, which puts it a bit of an outlier with other humanities. So about 30% of professional philosophers are female right now, um, which puts it kind of the same as science and engineering, maybe not engineering, although engineering has made a lot of gains at the moment, so maybe... Um, But it's also that the people I went through grad school with, a lot of them had an undergraduate degree in the sciences, right? Um, So I went to grad school with people who had a mathematics degree, who had a computer science degree, um, who had biology degrees, psychology degrees, and then they were drawn to philosophy afterwards because there were these questions they wanted to ask that they couldn't quite ask in their disciplines. So. I think we need more of that, more interdisciplinary research. And, and yeah, I mean, obviously I think the humanities are incredibly valuable. Perhaps I'm a little bit biased, but I, I mean, we need ethics absolutely right now. And we don't, I I don't see a lot of that happening in Silicon Valley at the moment no
0: and you're right and I, I think again we're going to continue to need it um, in even more urgent ways but i again i just want to point listeners of the show back to the book you know many of my listeners um teach in ib the international baccalaureate program and they have students who have to write their extended essay and often you know helping students kind of find where do you want to focus your research efforts because they're sustained over a big period of time and i think This book is such a great one for high school librarians to make sure they're stocking up on because I think it really it opened up my mind to the many different directions. um, That a researcher could go and just again like there's a lot of overlap, so um, you know if you're interested in AI. And mm-hmm. you're looking for a different lens to bring to it. Um, you know, you're interested in, in technology broadly, and you want to find like a really niche, special way of, of kind of exploring that. This book just does a really great job, I think, of showing there's so many, so many different directions to go. Thank
1: you. Yeah, one of the things we also really tried to do in the book was uh, obviously there are a lot of chapters on digital technologies and specifically like social media and virtual assistants and things like that. But we also tried to talk about more what might be better known as material technologies as well. Um, so birth control pills and menstrual supplies and um, those kind of thing, uh, assistive technologies for disabled folks and stuff like that To to just not just think of tech as digital, which I think is quite often a a default position that a lot of people have when they hear tech they think digital and of course those aren't the only tools that have shaped our reality or our experience right now yeah and and again i think um you do a great job of showing
0: how significant that influence is so uh, you know again listeners please just order the book make sure that your local librarian has it stocked up go um, libraries go libraries <laughs> uh chapter nine is an essay about artificial intelligence. And I'd like to quote the the scholar who writes this essay, Sahar Reza. Let me know if I'm mispronouncing that, please. Sahar Reza. Thank you. Um, (laughs) I'm going to quote from that that essay. Bear with me. I know that you edited this. No Uh, worries. (laughs) Quote, Like many millennials who grew up in the age of the Internet, I have seen firsthand how our dependence on search engines, social media, and smartphones has shaped the ways in which we think, we live, think, and relate with one another. I live in a world where corporate ads, algorithms, logics, and data collection processes influence everything that I see and do on the Internet, end quote. Listeners of this show, uh, many or most of whom are K-12 educators again, are really heavily immersed in conversations about generative AI tools like ChatGPT. And this essay reminds us we have to start, you know, asking ourselves, do our students know how, you know, algorithmic bias operates, what it is? I'm wondering how this essay maybe links to questions and conversations that, you know, you're having about what I'm I'm thinking of as like AI's big moment. It's not new, but I would say like the general public almost doesn't have a choice as to whether or not to be aware um, yeah. of of its existence all of a sudden.
1: Yeah. Um, that's such a great question. I When I was working with Sahar Raza editing this chapter, and later when I interviewed her from my podcast, I learned so much from her work. And I was really appreciative that she wanted to be part of this collection. Um, and she wrote this before ChatGPT, but I think a lot of what she says still applies to generative AI as well so she uses what she calls a socio-technical lens which is a way of analyzing smart ai technologies by keeping kind of their social functions in mind and considering mindfully who they serve and as we've talked about who they don't serve (laughs) and she notes one of the main things that smart ai does is what she calls social sorting and this is putting us kind of in boxes and categories with quote unquote people like us (laughs) that smart ai thinks are similar to us So she says in the podcast, for example, how like her digital feeds are full of stuff about weddings because she just recently planned a wedding when I interviewed her, but her partner's digital feeds were full of like sporting events and how she didn't necessarily appreciate that divide. It, It kind of feeds you back stuff that it already thinks you're interested in and know, and it doesn't, it makes it harder and harder to discover new things, new ideas, new interests, new hobbies, new perspectives, all that stuff. And I mean, that affects all of us, but there are ways in which this social sorting can be particularly harmful when we start using smart AI um, for things like the criminal justice system, where people could be denied bail, for example, based on the fact that they've been socially sorted in a biased way. um, And so they think that um, these people are more likely to uh, recommit crimes, right? And statistically... That is not true so smart AI tends to socialize racialized people into positions where they end up being denied bail, even though the stats show that there's really no increased risk of um, reoffending, but that's what the AI tool has learned. it's learned racism. Um, people can be denied loans based on their gender or race rather than based on you know whether or not they can repay the loan. Um, So there's this way in which it reinforces biases in ways that are materially quite harmful to people. It also, because it feeds back to us stuff that we've already shown an interest in, it's really, really quick that people can become radicalized. You just kind of get funneled down. And I mean, I've seen this happen. So, you know, I was kind of curious about why people were anti-vax for example in 2020 so I go look at some of you know the articles and arguments that they're making I am not anti-vax but I was curious you go click on a few links and suddenly you're getting all these radicalized videos in your feed kind of you know talking about I don't know how vax was connected to um web technologies and and what was it, Microsoft was going to influence us all from, from the Vax or something like that. And it happens really, really fast. So that's a concern um, regarding smart AI technologies that they're in some ways, as as uh, Reza says, they're not very smart. <laughs> they're very blunt instruments. They put us in boxes and then just kind of keep feeding that box with what we've already clicked on. Yeah, so that's one concern.
0: I was just going to mention there's a great podcast I often recommend for parents and caretakers called Rabbit Hole from the New York Times that explores like firsthand. They have people talking about uh, teenagers, talking about like YouTube's algorithm and how, as you said, it's quite quick. You know, if you're on YouTube, YouTube wants you to stay there. So it's doing everything it can to,
1: again, make sure you just keep watching videos, yeah. right? And um, anger is a great clickbait. If you're if you're angry, you stay. Yeah, it's terrible.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I I try to remind myself of that like anytime I am scrolling on Twitter, right? Because I've noticed it seems like that algorithm is has tried to churn that up even more. Like, how can it yeah. tap into my outrage? Um, yeah, and realize like I don't want to feel outrage and anger all the time. Um, has has been yeah. good for for me, kind of. Uh, I would say like
1: monitoring my own social media use. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and I mean, I think there are a lot of my colleagues in psychology who are looking at the effects that this can have as well. Um, the, there are a few other things that um, Reza talks about that I think are important for this kind of chat GPT generative AI moment. So there's this issue of social sorting and, and bias and radicalization, but she also talks about what she calls aspirational labor and labor attainment. So this is when we volunteer volunteer our labor to these platforms. Um, And this can be everything from like leaving a review on an Amazon product to like making YouTube videos or TikTok videos or blogs or whatever. That's all content, right? Like YouTube wants content. They want more content. And many people do this in the hopes of becoming a YouTuber or a TikToker. Very few people manage to go pro. Um, and this is also gendered labor, which I didn't know until I talked to Reza about this, that um, a lot of this labor tends to be performed by young women and it is less likely that young women are gonna be able to go pro. So that's that's another thing to think about. So when I think about um, Sahar Reza's work in the context of ChatGBT and other generative AIs, there are a few things that I notice. Like I said, there's still the reinforcing of bias, which happens, right? So ChatGPT gives me a list of famous philosophers that are all men. (laughs) Um, Generative AI still has a bias problem. Adding the fancy generative did not get rid of that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And these tools can be used effectively to manufacture misinformation that looks incredibly accurate. So in terms of radicalization, I think that risk has even gone up now because it's so easy to manufacture something that looks professional, that sounds authoritative, that is complete. I, I probably can't swear on this, can I? Go for it. That is complete bullshit. It's yeah. complete bullshit. <laughs> um, so that the risk of radicalization, I think, is higher now. Um, and that's not new. It's just faster and more accessible because of these tools. And then when I think about labor and general exploitation, our aspirational labor is even more stolen now, right? As our writing and podcasts and videos and other material have been fed into these devices, that's what trained them. And that was done without our knowledge or consent. And... I think when people find these tools remarkable, and there are times when they are remarkable, what they can do, what we have to remember is they are only remarkable to the extent that we are remarkable. What they are doing is feeding back countless decades of our work that is on the internet that has been combed and scraped for these tools. And then, of course, there's also the labor that was exploited. Um, LA Times broke an article recently that labor was traumatized in putting these tools on rails, right? So chat GPT and other tools don't give you back um, horrifically objectionable content. For example, things like pedophilia and stuff have been, they, they don't do that. That's because an army of underpaid laborers was paid to make sure that these tools don't do that. And many of the people involved in that are now facing huge amounts of trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder from the things that they had to go through, the stuff they had to read and witness in order to remove from these tools for the rest of us. And they were compensated like $2 an hour or something. It was horrific. So we still have general trends of exploitation, both in terms of our labor being taken and fed into these tools without our knowledge and consent, and in terms of the bare minimum things that have been done to make these tools safer and more ethical, but have been done in extremely unethical ways, exploiting the labor of people um, and and leaving people horribly traumatized. So that's, that's a bunch of stuff about how Reza's work still applies. But there's also one more thing that I find kind of distressing, particularly as an educator. And that's, as I said, that the writing is very author- uh, uh, authoritarian that ChatGPT delivers, but it's also like really bland. Mm. <laughs> like... <laughs> When I'm working as an educator, trying to help students write papers or do presentations, or I have had podcast assignments or whatever, what I'm trying to do is help students find and cultivate their own voice and their own passion. And chat GPT speaks in a really generic voice. So that makes me think of um, the work by writer Amy Tan. She wrote this article that I think is still available for free online called Mother Tun. Um, And she talks about how the accented and non-standard English her mother spoke, um, which was her mother's second language. That English was so rich and meaningful to Tan as a child growing up, and how she was kind of shocked by the ways in which um, that English was dismissed by other people. And so I worry that like widespread use of tools like ChatGPT not only exploits the labor of people in the designing of the tools, but also would lead to the robbing of our own unique voices, because it it's a really powerful way of reinforcing the bias of what quote unquote good writing looks like. And it's really narrow. And if my students are listening, I don't want them to write like that. <laughs> I want them to explore all the richness of all the languages that they speak. So, yeah.
0: I love that you point that out because actually a ChatGPT activity that I've been doing with some educators and school leaders um, is I've asked them, you know, invite ChatGPT to give you a DEIJ statement or for the teacher who facilitates a SOGI or GSA group, let's ask it for a mission statement. Or, ChatGPT, give us a mission statement for our K-12 school, and then let's do a comparison. And is yours as generic as what this has created? Like, how do we feel about that? Um, What does that say about our statement? It's sort of an interesting exercise, right? Um, Because I agree with you, the writing is bland, and I do think... You know even even asking it you know after you've prompted it for something like make it sound more professional or less formal and then what do you notice about how chat gpt is um inferring what that means yeah um and that's and a was... great exercise I like. yeah it, it, it's really fun and i i think you know all of the issues that you're bringing up bringing up invite us to tinker and play with chat gpt and kind of really grapple with if this is almost like this distorted fun house mirror of what we're saying, um, what
1: does it have to teach yeah. us about, um, about ourselves, about ourselves? Yeah. <laughs> about Because it knows what, prof- insofar as it knows anything and it's not sentient, but it knows quote unquote knows what professional writing is because that's what we've told it professional writing is. And yeah, that's, that's concerning to me. Um, And I also think that when playing with these tools, it's worth really being honest about how the tools were created and having discussions about whether or not it's ethical to play to interact with tools that were created with the huge amount of exploitation um, that has gone into the creation of these. And then noting that that doesn't make ChatGPT unique, right? There's a huge amount of exploitation that goes into the creation of pretty much all of our smart AI tools. Um, Phil Jones has written a slim book called Work Without the Worker. That goes into the kind of exploitation behind facial recognition software, behind the Uber app, behind Amazon, all kinds of stuff. Like this isn't new; it's just kind of, as you say, explode exploding right now mm-hmm. with ChatGPT. Um, and I'm I'm hopeful. If I'm hopeful of anything, it's that it's actually going to bring all these issues to the surface in a way other tools maybe haven't prompted us to have these difficult conversations.
0: I I hope so too. And I I do feel like, at least in conversations I'm having, I do feel like a lot of folks are reflecting on that moment when all of a sudden Facebook was ubiquitous, and how we didn't necessarily kind of pump the brakes and ask what's happening here. um, Yeah, who's getting to make the decisions. Uh, Yeah, I, I definitely think there's a lot of great conversations to be had. Thank you so much for that. Lastly, your book, does have the podcast companion that we've talked about it expands on the original collection of essays. And again, listeners, I'll give you the the link to the show full stop. But I also want to point you specifically to episode 10. I'm wondering how you can talk more about how that episode helps us dig deeper into our thinking about authenticity and why that's such an important conversation.
1: Yeah. Um, episode 10 is where I had the privilege of interviewing Jennifer Heights Thomas, um, whose work in the book and the episode of the podcast I think is so important. And again, I learned so much from Heights Thomas um, and from speaking with her about her work. So the chapter, um, she studies gatekeeping for uh, that trans folk face when seeking gender confirmation surgery, as opposed to the general lack of gatekeeping that cis men face um, when seeking penis augmentation surgery. So her work specifically looks at penis augmentation surgery and gender confirmation surgery, noting that other people have done other research looking at things like um, breast aug- augmentation. So she points you to other research as well, if you're interested in that. Um, and what was remarkable to me was the different paths of access that trans folk and cis men had and the very, to these various medical technological procedures. So trans folk had to jump through a lot of hoops to access these surgeries, whereas a cis man could have access to surgery within about a week of an initial consultation. So a trans person would have to have psychological consultations, other procedures to go through, perhaps have to live as their identified gender for a period of months or more before they could access the surgery. Um, This could take and I'm in Canada, this could take anywhere from six months to upwards of two years, depending on where in Canada um, somebody was trying to do this. Whereas for a cis man, you could go in and have the consultation and within a week you could be undergoing the surgery. So having noted this disparity, Heights Thomas interviews the surgeons who perform both penis augmentation and gender confirmation surgery, since often they require quite similar skills. Um, and asked them why they thought there was this disparity between their cis and trans patients. And as she notes in the chapter, many of the answers that she received back hinged on this idea of authenticity. (laughs) Um, Many of the surgeons that she interviewed had expressed some kind of general anxiety that trans folk may not authentically be who they say they are, whereas cis folk were taken to be expressing authentic desires. And Obviously, there's a lot of cis normative bias wrapped up in this idea, um, since it expresses to us this notion that, like, being cis is somehow, quote, air quotes again, normal, and that being trans is somehow suspect and in need of greater proof. So, this tells us a lot about widespread social notions of what counts as an authentic desire. And it tells us that those widespread notions of authenticity are incredibly biased. <laughs> And I think this was even more obvious to me when I interviewed Heights Thomas for the podcast, where she noted that actually some cis men's desires were also not seen as authentic. So for example, a cis man seeking um, penis reduction, desiring a smaller penis is not one that surgeons typically recognize as authentic. Um, And this seems to come from some kind of assumption that it would be impossible for any man to desire a smaller penis which maybe tells us something about cultural norms of masculinity. <laughs> so I think authenticity, we often think of it as this very personal idea of who you are, who you really are, and what you really want. But what Hypes Thomas found was that cultural notions of authenticity are mediated by a whole bunch of assumptions. And in this case, assumptions specifically regarding cisnormativity and masculinity. And so when we take this idea of authenticity and recognize that it is kind of shaped by social forces and then think about how that affects technological interventions to the physical body, Heitz-Thomas really challenged me to consider all of this through what she calls soma technics. So soma refers to the body and technic is te- technology. And so soma is this concept that the body is always already shaped by and interacting with technologies. In which case it's this idea that authenticity somehow only applies to some technological interventions is really interesting. So somatechnics kind of at the basis, we can think about things like the fact that cooking food has kind of changed our digestive system and our teeth. Shoes have kind of changed our feet. Um, I can also think about spending so much time online in 2020 and how now I need to wear glasses when I look at a computer, right? So computer screens changing my eyes, Um, tool use and getting calluses on your hands. So there's a bunch of ways in which technologies are already affecting our bodies all the time, even if we don't talk about things like pacemakers, for example. So when we think about Somatechnics, it really changed my own thinking about our bodies and our physical relationship to te- technology. Because technology is already here, shaping our bodies all the time. And that means that this idea that there's a natural, quote unquote, natural body existing free of technological influence is kind of a non starter if you begin from a somatechnic perspective. Another thing that Heights Thomas noted in her interviews was that surgeons often thought that cis men's desires were somehow less risky or less of a drastic change to the body because the surgeons tend to tended to view cis men as simply, quote unquote, augmenting what they already had, whereas the surgeons viewed trans folk as making big radical changes. But again, Soma Technics challenges this view by pointing out that the body has always been shaped and changed by technological intervention. And there really isn't any natural body existing free of technological influence. So if we're thinking about authenticity, we have to include technology right from the start.
0: I listeners, I'm really hoping that is like, whetted your appetite to listen to the rest (laughs) of the episode to check out the book, because it really it it is fascinating. And it had me reflecting on um, I love podcasts, I listen to a ton of them. And sometimes folks will ask, like, how do you listen to so many? I don't do this anymore. But there was a time when I was listening to almost everything at either like 1.5 or double speed. But then I was starting to notice that when I was like having a conversation with my wife, I was starting to get impatient and like really having to bite my tongue to not say like, speak faster. You know, like <laughs> my mind has become accustomed to hearing everything at this um, much, much quicker pace. Right. Uh, and I I kind of felt like Can this... we do
1: this conversation double speed, please. Yes.
0: I got things to do. <laughs> yes. Um, and I yeah, yeah, I stopped doing that because I was starting to feel like a, a like a twinge of anxiety in in all conversations that it somehow wasn't efficient. And then I was like, that's not something that I want to feel when I'm listening to friends and family.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's another great example of how technology can, can change our physical bodies and our expectations and desires. I've sometimes challenged my own students to do this really simple thing where I just ask them to move all the apps around on their phone, just put them all in different places, And just see what happens right because you have muscle memory for your favorite apps on your phone. So I'll do this myself when I'm spending too much time on Twitter I move the Twitter in the library app, and then I get to go to the library, which is a better place for me to be than on Twitter, but also anxiety people have when they lose their phones. the the whole move of like having the television have a, a place of prominence in the living room, which is now kind of fading away, but was like a big thing in my childhood, right? Um, all these kind of changes to the way we live, to the way we interact with each other, to our physical bodies themselves. Everybody sitting on the bus bent down mm-hmm. looking at their phones. Um, yeah, I think I, I found soma technics really interesting. And I think it is mainly about physical changes to the body brought along by technology, but I think we could also think about the ways in which desires and expectations um, and habits are are shaped and changed by technologies as well.
0: Yeah, certainly communication habits, you know, and yeah. <clears throat> I I love that question. I feel like it's a great place to leave off. And I, I love that you've also pointed us to another example of how we can experiment to kind of test it, because I know sometimes... It's very easy to dismiss and think like, well, no, you know, my use of technology isn't changing anything. Of course, I am the one in control. I'm in control. I'm in control of this. I'm the master. (laughs) That's right. But um, I love that idea of moving apps around. You know, you can also grayscale your phone, which, you know, your your apps kind of very quickly lose that that allure and that interest. And it's been pointed out that a lot of the apps are also based kind of on like casino colors yes. that really engage us. Um, so that's another
1: great one to play around with. So um, yeah, thank you for that. I think that- Oh, and change change the voice on your digital assistant if you use one. I challenge people to do that too and see how that feels.
0: Yes, and I, I actually related to, of course, your work. Um, I have a friend who was saying she was not really liking the way that her husband was arguing with uh, the navigation assistant who was gendered. To be a, a woman, and she was like, just there was something about the way that he would argue with her in front of the kids that made me uncomfortable, and I just didn't want um our son to be hearing what sounded like my husband being very rude to this woman mm-hmm. again and mm-hmm. again and again.
1: um so I, I kind of found that to be fascinating as well. yeah, there is some um so UNESCO reports on this as well. there's some psychological research that by and large in North America, we prefer female sounding voices when the assistant is giving us advice, and male sounding voices when it's giving direction, um, which tells us a lot about the gender biases that (laughs) exist in our societies right now. Um, And I did once hear of an example where there were fire alarms that were rigged up to have a soothing female voice right up until they told you you needed to get out of the building, and then it would switch to an authoritative, like deep male voice. And it was like, oh, I don't love that that's a thing. That's that's
0: interesting. Well, again, all of, all of your work is just fascinating. I really appreciate you giving up the time to come on and explain it to listeners of this show um, and look forward to seeing more of your work, I am sure, in years to come. More research
1: uh, is always needed in this area. Yeah, we've got another um, season of the podcast coming out this summer, um, and I'm hoping to do something more in terms of transnational feminisms and Um, technology in the future. So that should be really fun.
0: Really looking forward to that. Thank you again
1: so much. Thanks for having me. This was awesome. Have a good one.
0: Listeners, you can learn more about the book discussed by heading over to the show notes, as well as the podcast, Gender, Sex and Tech. If, like me, you end up binging season one pretty quickly, good news. Season two is out very soon on June 2nd. See you again next Thursday.